monks have and, and uh, nuns have a tendency to arrive to prayer five minutes early so that they can center themselves and be in a place where they're ready for it. And uh, if you're anything like me, Sunday mornings can be hectic. Uh, getting here, getting everybody dressed and out the door, uh, remembering to get your coffee that you poured off of the kitchen counter. Uh, I forget fully half of the time. Um, and you know, sometimes traffic can be rough or the line at Starbucks is a little rough. And so let's just take a couple of moments to center ourselves and be uh, fully present here in this moment. Uh, so if it helps, close your eyes. Take some deep breaths. Fully fill your lungs. You have been breathing all day without even noticing. So just take a minute to wonder at the marvel that is your body. Find any stress that you're holding. Maybe it's in a clenched jaw or fists that you're holding, the tension right behind your eyes. And just let it go. Okay, so if you were with us last week, you may recall the Bible Project video that we watched together that overviewed the book of Job. And so you may remember that the, the book is bookended. It's framed by two sections of prose narrative, chapters 1 and 2, which we went through last week, which sets us up for this, this story, right? And then chapter 42 over here, which ends the story, both of those prose aspects of the book. And we won't get into 42 yet because we don't want to give away the end of the story. But you may recall as well that the, the authors, the presenters in that video said the, the overwhelming majority of the book, though, chapters 3 through 41, are what they characterize as dense poetry, dense ancient Near Eastern. And so that's where we're going to begin today, to start looking at, at uh, some of this poetry that's that is the majority of the book that we're, we're studying this, this semester, right? Uh, and so what we're going to do is, uh, you may, may recall again from the video, it begins with a soliloquy from, from Job and lament from Job, and then we get into a cycle or a pattern of, uh, of a dialogue between Job's three friends, El 
Wobad and Gopar and Job. And so we're going to go through the first of those cycles or rounds today, chapters 3 through 14. And we did read the entirety of chapters 1 and 2 last week, but we're not going to do that as we're going through the, the remainder of the book, uh, since it is so much poetry. If you wanted to spend some time during the week uh, reading for yourself those chapters, I think that would be good. Uh, but today we're going to kick it off just by looking at Job chapter Three, which is this opening lament of soliloquy by him. And just to steep us a little bit into this type of poetry, we are going to read the entirety of this first, uh, yeah, this first chapter of the po po poetic section of Job. So I've asked Paige if she would to read that for us. After this, Job's second. <laughs> <laughs> um, after this, Job opened his mouth and cursed the day of his birth. He said, May the day of my birth perish and the night that said a boy is conceived. That day may it turn to darkness. May God above not care about it. May no light shine on it. May gloom and utter darkness claim it once more. May a cloud settle over it. May blackness overwhelm it. That night, May thick darkness seize it, may it not be included among the days of the year, nor be entered in any of the months. May that night be barren, may no shout of joy be heard in it. May those who curse days curse that day. Those who are ready to rouse Leviathan, may its morning stars become dark. May it wait for daylight in vain and not see the first rays of dawn. For it did not shut the doors of the womb on me to hide trouble from my eyes. Why did I not perish at birth and die as I came from the womb? Why were there knees to receive me and breasts that I might be nursed? For now I would be lying down in peace. I would be asleep and at rest with kings and rulers of the earth who built for themselves places now lying in ruins. With princes who had gold who filled their houses with silver? Or why was I not hidden away in the ground like a stillborn child, like an infant who never saw the light of day? There the wicked cease from turmoil, and there, there the weary are at rest. Captives also enjoy their ease. They no longer hear the slave driver shout. The small and the great are there. The slaves are free from their owners. Why is light given to those in misery, and life to the bitter of soul, to those who long for death that does not come, who search for it more than for hidden treasure, who are filled with gladness and rejoice when they reach the grave? Why is life given to a man whose way is hidden from God, who is, whose way is hidden, whom God has hedged in? For sighing has become my daily my groans pour out like water. What I feared has come upon me. What I dreaded has happened to me. I have no peace, no quietness. I have no rest, but only trouble. Okay, so hopefully that gives you a little bit of an idea of the, the kind of poetry that, that makes up this center section, the majority of this book. What we really see 
with this first speech by, by Job as captured by the poet is he's taking the traditional ancient Near Eastern approach of lamenting over his suffering. We know that from the, the second chapter, right? That he sat and he, he tore his clothes and sat in sackcloth and ashes. And that his three friends came and did the same thing. Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar. They came and sat with him in silence for seven days. So now this is the poet having Job break the silence. And he does so with this poem of, of lament. Um, the Satan, uh, the Hebrew word that we translate, transliterate Satan, the Satan, or the accuser, the adversary, he had predicted that Job would curse God. And Job's wife had suggested to Job that he do exactly that. But instead, what we see Job doing here is cursing his own life. He doesn't curse God, but he's cursing his own life. And to begin with, this curse is leveled at the day of his birth, as well as the, the, the night of his conception. And then we see in the poetry that he asks a series of questions. Why did I not die at birth? Then one would be like kings. Why not an untimely abortion? Then one would be like the slave. And why was life given to one such as I? For now look what comes. And so this is the way we, we would see in typical poetry of this time how a lament would be worded. We, we see this in some of the psalms of lament as well. So again, after this opening breaking of the silence by Job, we get into a, a series of three different cycles of dialogue. Uh, this takes us through the majority of the book, chapters 4 through 27, but three different cycles, three different rounds, in which each of the three friends of Job, Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar, they speak they, to Job, as captured in the poetry, and then Job has a response, a reply. So we see this same pattern carried through three different times, except when we get to the third time, Zophar says, forget it, I'm just going to shut up. I'm not going to say anything more. Everything that needs to be said has been said. So we don't have Zophar and Job's reply in the third round. So today we'll go through this, this first round, this first cycle. Um, and again, we read the entirety of chapter 3, we're not going to read the entirety of each of these chapters. We're just going, I'm going to point out some highlights from each one of them. Uh, so the first is to get us uh, a quotation from the poetic, uh, uh, the poem uh, Eliphaz uh, speaks to, to, to Job. Think now who that was innocent ever perished. Or where were the upright cut off? As I have seen those who plow iniquity and sow trouble reap the same, by the breath of God they perish, and by the blast of his anger they are consumed. So basically, Eliphaz is saying, you see there in 8b, that we reap what we sow. And so if I am perishing, it's by the breath of God. Okay. 
jump and look at a couple of verses here from Bildad in chapter 8. Does God pervert justice or does the Almighty pervert the right? If your children sinned against him, he delivered them into the power of their transgression. If you will seek God and make supplication to the Almighty, if you are pure and upright, surely then he will rouse himself for you and restore to you your rightful place. What's Bildad saying? That God is just. And the implication is that Job did something wrong. Exactly. Else this would not be happening. Zophar, from chapter 11, beginning in verse 13. If you direct your heart rightly, you will stretch out your hands toward him, Job. If iniquity is in your hand, put it far away. And do not let wickedness reside in your tents. Surely then you will lift up your face without blemish. You will be secure and will not fear. Basically the same message, right? Zophar is telling Job, there must be wickedness in your tents. Else this wouldn't be happening to you, right? In essence, Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar are just echoing to Job what was the common wisdom of the day, the common wisdom philosophy that we reap what we sow. Uh, if you recall from a couple of weeks ago, we, we said theologians tend to call this retribution theology, or sometimes the retribution principle, or you may even hear the term retributive justice. Basically, this is the idea that we reap what we sow. Paul wrote this in Galatians 6, 7, where he said, Whatsoever a man soweth, that also shall he reap. Right? This is what Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar are telling Job. Um, we could, we could uh, use an implication statement to say that righteousness implies prosperity. Uh, in English for us, uh, an implication statement can also be as if A, then B. So if we're good, then we're going to prosper. And on the flip side of it, wickedness implies suffering. If we're evil, then we're going to suffer. That's basically what's being said here, right? And there is no doubt that Scripture teaches this principle. Again, uh, a couple of weeks ago, we mentioned uh, several uh, cases, uh, several places where this this is the case. Um, Deuteronomy uh, definitely teaches it uh, throughout the book, but here's a highlight that, that I paraphrased from Deuteronomy 30: If you obey God, then God will bless you; but if you disobey, then you will perish. Um, the Proverbs, we again a couple of weeks ago mentioned the wisdom literature in our Hebrew Bible consists of Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and Job. Basically, the Proverbs are um, espousing this type of uh, a simplistic moral principle. We see one example here in Proverbs 3.33. The Lord's curse is on the house of the wicked, 
but he blesses the abode of the righteous. What we also mentioned then was that, yeah, Proverbs says this, but if we look at the other two books of wisdom, Job and Ecclesiastes, they sort of say, whoa, hold on a second. Maybe it's not quite that simple. Maybe there are some other factors. And then I think that we see this underlying so many of the Psalms as well. Here's an example that I pulled out. The righteous shall be kept safe forever, but the children of the wicked shall be cut off. At the same time, I think in a number of the Psalms, the psalmist uh, also throws a monkey wrench into it, into this principle as well, because we see so many of the psalmists saying, Oh God, how long will my enemies prosper? How long will the wicked prosper? So he says, maybe it's not quite that simple. problem with what Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar are espousing here. Uh, even if we can assume that those two principles are always true, those two implication statements are always true, let's just assume that for a moment. What they have done is they've converted the implication. See, they've turned it around where the implication is the righteous will prosper the wicked will suffer. They said, oh, okay, if the prosperity implies righteousness. In other words, we go back to that if A, then B. If we're prospering, then that means we're good. If we're suffering, that means that we're evil. And just logically, we know that the converse of a statement like this is not, it might be true, but it is not always necessarily true. If I have $3, then I have $2, right? That's a true statement. But if I have two, I don't necessarily have three. So they've converted the logic here, and that is not necessarily true. So that's, that's their first problem. But the second problem is Scripture itself goes beyond those, those simple principles. Uh, it, it's, I think, just a matter of, of seeing the whole of Scripture as, as evolving beyond Again, this simplistic moral principle. Um, you know, I, like probably most of you, grew up in Churches of Christ, and we always made this huge distinction between Old Testament and New Testament, right? Uh, the old law and the new law, Judaism and Christianity. We acknowledged that there was a type 
of evolution in scripture, right? I think it's actually much more nuanced than that dichotomy that there is, we see evolution uh, at multiple layers. Um, it's, it's exactly like we raise our children. We don't try to teach our children everything on day one, right? Uh, we start simple, and then we add layers of complexity over time as they mature to be able to understand those, those layers. And that may be what Proverbs teaches, again, but Ecclesiastes and Job are saying it's not quite that simple. There, there is more complexity. Um, and there's a number of other scriptures we could turn to as well to, to, to talk about um, uh, evolving that principle. Uh, and if we have time toward the end today, we'll, we'll have some discussion questions about that. But I also know that we'll, we'll save that topic for a little bit later in, during our class as well to talk more about additional places in scripture. Uh, so yeah, if we go back... Now let's look now at, and just highlight some of Job's replies in chapters 6 and 7, 9, 10, 12 through 14. Uh, yes? One quick observation. I feel like Job's friends there are doing what now we might call victim blaming. Mm. Right? Yes. Something terrible happened to you. You must have done something. Yep. 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 That's exactly right. I, I've been looking for some modern contemporary terms, and there's another one we'll discuss at the end of class, uh, but I think that, that that's a good one, victim blanket. Yes? Uh, when you're Joshua's sermon today, that the children were a blessing of the Lord, and Sarah was being cursed by the Lord. Mm. Uh, Hannah said, much of rejoice. Yes, right. And uh, so if you don't have children, then therefore you must be similar yes. uh, theology. Yeah, 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 exactly. All right, so yeah, just a couple of highlights from Job's responses. Uh, Teach me and I will be silent. Make me understand how I have gone wrong in chapter 6. At least initially, and this is a little bit of what Becky's going to get to, Job doesn't disagree with Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar. Philosophically, that's what he's always espoused as well. But he just questions... If that is true, what did I do wrong? Where have I gone wrong? Um, in chapter 7, I loathe my life. I would not live forever. Let me alone, for my days are a breath. What are humans that you make so much of them that you set your mind on them? Visit them every morning. Test them every moment. Will you not look away from me for a while? Let me alone until I swallow my spittle. If I sin, what do I do to you, you watcher of humanity? Why have you made me your target? Why have I become a burden to you? Why do you not pardon my transgressions and take away my iniquity? For now I shall lie in the earth. You will seek me, but I shall not be. So we see that Job here has really gone away from responding to his friends, and he's questioning God, right? God, why, what, what I understand philosophically has to be true. So why are you punishing me? Why is this happening to me? Uh, and then from chapter 9, if it is a contest of strength, he is the strong one. If it is a matter of justice, who can summon him? Nobody is questioning God, your power. 
We understand, God, that you're the strongest. But the issue here for Job is not power, it's justice. Are you just, God? Which is the key subject of the wisdom tradition. Though I am innocent, my own mouth would condemn me. Though I am blameless, he would prove me perverse. I am blameless, I do not know myself. I loathe my life. It is all one, one. therefore I say, he destroys both the blameless and the wicked. And there Job goes on to implicate God as unjust, right? God, if you're destroying the blameless and the wicked, then that's not just. Or at least that's what Job is saying. And I think, really, this is a stroke of ingenuity for the, the poet here. I think what the poet is doing is expressing what so many of us may, may feel in our deepest thoughts that we would never dare to say out loud, right? If we're in the middle of suffering, oftentimes aren't we questioning God? Why? And that's what the poet is having Job do for us, impersonate that aspect. Of, of our humanity. And then the last one we'll look at from uh, chapter 9. Would that there were a mediator between us who might lay his hand on us both. Ultimately, Job would like a neutral mediator between himself and God. In essence, what Job is doing here is he's putting God on trial. That's what we're going to see, especially as we get toward the latter half of the book and he starts questioning God. He's, in essence, putting God on trial to say, you're supposed to be a just God, but I'm not seeing it. So, yeah, uh, we spoke earlier about uh, these three terms, and thank you for bringing up an additional one, Derek, uh, that those three terms are roughly synonymous with this philosophy that Job and his friends, uh, at least initially, uh, espouse. But there's a fourth one that I wonder if we could add, a fourth contemporary term, uh, prosperity gospel. And so I would like for us to take a few minutes, as we have the last couple of weeks, and for you to divide up in small groups of two to four or so, and let's talk through a couple of questions, then we'll come back together. and. Uh, you can share what uh, you guys came up with together. Does what Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar are telling Job relate to your understanding of the prosperity gospel? What is it that you believe about prosperity gospel and how? Previously, what were your thoughts or ideas about it, and does this change those thoughts or ideas? So, yeah, break up into your small group. Time. B2, that's the first <laughs> <laughs> uh, So, yeah, regarding how you think this relates back to, is, is this the same thing, this retribution theology we're talking about? These two implications, the good implies prosperity, evil implies suffering. Yeah. I first think of the fluent financially or 
those sorts of benefits, but we were talking about how it could be pray this prayer and God will give you and claim God's going to give you help. Yes. Give you, which kind of runs against people in other parts of the world who have a whole lot less humility for that. Yep. They may be more content. Yep. And I hear a lot of times that yeah. it's a God thing. Maybe, maybe it is. I don't know. But am I in a position to, to say that? And and the person who didn't get what I got, you know, was that a God thing too? Intellectually, I do not believe in the prosperity gospel, but I think there may be something today in me, maybe in all of us, that kind of defaults to if something happens that is not good, what did I do wrong? Right. Right. Maybe if something good happens, what did I do right? I don't believe that, but I think that's a default. And I think that's that again is the the. The ingenuity of this poem for us is that the author, the poet, is allowing Job to be the mouthpiece for those feelings that we, again, intellectually, maybe we don't believe, we say we don't believe that, but it's our default reaction when something happens, right? If we're paid, you guys want to add anything to, to that from our discussion? Uh, this is maybe a little bit off topic, but... Uh, I'm not sure if there still is, but once upon a time there was a Twitter account called Osteen or Panda, and it was uh, Joel Osteen quotes and Panda Express uh, uh, fortune cookies. <laughs> and you had to guess like, where, where, which one did that come from, but it was really hard to tell. And, and, uh, and like Fletcher said, uh, there, you know, I can look at that and laugh and say, oh, I don't believe that. But then in my own life, when something happens or when I pray to, to have, uh, you know, to, to get the job or to get the house or to get the, the person or whatever it is and it doesn't happen, uh, my real beliefs kind of come to the surface there. Uh, I, I hope that account still exists, so you should all check it out. Has someone ingrained this through our childhood, like he said, you know, you don't think this way, but somehow all of a sudden you fall back to it because I feel like in my childhood, if I did wrong, I was punished. If I did good, I might get a treat. I get something good. So I think from our infancy up, we are programmed to feel that way. That if you've done wrong, that's the punishment time. If you yep. do right, you get the Yep. Yeah, exactly. I think the prosperity gospel plays well with prosperous people because they're doing the same logical fallacy of taking the inverse. Right? Yes. If you are righteous, you must prosper. So if I'm prospering, I must have been righteous. Right. And that's not necessarily true logically. Yeah. You yeah. really feel really good about yourself if you're already wealthy. Right. I think, interestingly, though, the huge majority of people that follow prosperity gospel are actually impoverished because it gives them some level of control over their otherwise mm. very powerless life. Sure. Uh, so, yes, things are bad right now, but if I A, then B. Uh, and I think that that's another danger that we face um, in prosperity gospel thinking is 
person who got that diagnosis or that person whose marriage ended or, or whatever, if it's their fault for this reason, then that means that it won't happen to me. I can protect myself from that. I can have some level of control in my own life to keep that thing from happening to me. When in fact, you might not have that control at all. When in fact, none of us have that kind of control. <laughs> <laughs> yes. The problem yes. is that the problem is that God is setting up this entire debate with somebody that he absolutely defines as righteous. He's saying, can you consider my servant Job? So he is like the very definition of righteous. And if there's any doubt, read the first three verses and just change the word. And he had seven sons and three daughters were born to him, and his possessions were a $2.5 million house in Redwood, five cars with six-car garage. I mean, you could just, he's defining prosperity, and he's defining righteousness. And he wants us to wrestle with this, because I think we all have the propensity to believe it. And it takes 42 chapters. And we just don't get any. <laughs> Spoiler alert there. <laughs> I don't know if this is I wondered, but so Joel Osteen, he said Joel Osteen too. I didn't even know Joel Osteen. That was like part of Joel Osteen's thing. Thank you so much. Are there many, I don't know, how many churches in America? I don't know if I'd go mainstream, but I, I think there's there are quite a few churches and, and many of them that are rather large. And I think that a lot of used mega churches. It's, an, it's an undercurrent of a lot of American churches that wouldn't name it as such, mm -hmm. but they would. But the way in which we, you know, hashtag bless, like, yeah. yes, it's just yes, it's everywhere. Right. Yeah, the theology of it through Instagram and through Christian contemporary music and through uh, Hobby Lobby has, has kind of <laughs> seeped, <laughs> seeped into our lives. And so, although we don't go to a church that in our theology it says name it and claim it, that's probably something you all have heard. Um, and, uh, and that has its roots in, in prosperity gospel. Have we come down to understanding There are moments where you know we demand to like pray God and you feel in this kind of process like growing up that was what you did. And so like even though that's not operating about the like goal of being like praying or
I'm going to get this perfect husband, and it's going to be this perfect marriage, and, you know, anything like that, or I'm a good person, so I get, you know, the things that I want in my heart, and, and even sacrificial things, and, like, giving up everything to go overseas to be a missionary, and, and then doing that, and you suffer terribly, you're like, oh, this is not, I gave up everything, why did I do this? You know, I think all of those are pieces that kind of underline, where it's not like we're, we're not hoping for advancements or things like that, but it's that transactional relationship instead of like that relationship that kind of undergirds some of it. Well, and, and John, to your point too, um, I want to be careful that we're not saying that anytime we're asking God for something, that it is prosperity gospel, because God wants us to ask of Him. Jesus asked of God, take this cup from me. Uh, I think I think the story of Job is a reminder that we can come to God with all of our doubts and fears and frustrations and, and desires. Uh, the problem becomes, like Kate says, when it's transactional. I am formulating. If I do this, then this good thing will happen. And if this if this bad thing is happening, it must be because I didn't do this right or because I don't have enough faith or, or whatever. Uh, that's, that's when you're getting into some really dangerous verses. Well, and I think like in Daniel, when they're in the furnace, and he's like, um, you know, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are in the furnace, and you're like, well, even if, you know, I'm going to pray that God delivers us, but even if he doesn't, we'll serve the Lord. And I think that that posture has served me um, a lot, because it's, even if he doesn't, I'm going to ask, but even if he doesn't, um, that's not going to change my posture. Yeah, it's kind of like there's two prosperity gospels. There's one of, one of uh, prosperity with God, like God, and there's the physical prosperity. We really don't believe in physical prosperity, or we don't want to, but we do definitely. I definitely want to believe in prosperity with, with God by obedience and by well, and I, I think kind of back on what I was saying too, like this, it has its own reward, right? Morality has its own reward. Uh, walking in faith has its own reward. I think it's when we try to use those things. I don't think we do it consciously. Like I, I was just sharing with them that um, I, I was a good Christian girl and all the right things, and I had to make the faith practice in my early 30s, but then I was suffering. There's a lot of health stuff and different things. I was like, I did everything wrong, God.
sense of ambiguity, and that will really hang people up. They want to do something definite and get something definite. Yeah. And I, I just don't think God works that way. I, he hasn't worked that way in my life. He's been right. struggle for discernment. God will and you know, make the best of what yep. he's doing. It's, that's more, a more mature mindset than the do good, get good. Well, even the apostles, like when they're walking with Jesus for Jerusalem, they're all still bickering about who's going to be most important. Like, hey, we are with the guy, you know, and like, we weren't, we're going to get this, and I want to be this important, and all that In all one way, Jesus is saying, I'm going to die. Like, he is not speaking in parables. Like, he is not being, you know, sneaky about it. He's like, I'm going to die. I'm going to be crucified. I'm going to be raised from the dead. They're like, yeah, that's great. So, do I get to be first or second? Like, am I going to be your VP or am I going to be your treasure? You know, it's like he's not, they're not hearing it. And I think that's that's indicative of our spiritual walk, too. And, like, we all want to have resurrection, but none of us want to go through resurrection. Sorry. <laughs> that was good. Well, we're out of time, but thank you all so much, uh, especially for your participation.